0: Scripture reading, Genesis 14, 1720. After his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet Abraham at the valley of Shaveh. That is the king's valley. And King Melchizedek of Salem brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. He blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, maker of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your mind. The word of the Lord. What a Mother's Day gift, reading the hard names. Um, our second reading is, once again, as it was last week, from the book of Acts. Acts is the book in the Bible right after the, first, the four Gospels of uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The order, though, is Mark, Matthew, Luke, and John. But we believe that Acts was also authored by the apostle, the writer, Luke, Um, uh, as his gospel told the story of the life of Jesus, so the book of Acts tells the story of the birth and life of the early Christian church. So listen now, again from Acts, and to what the Spirit is saying to you and to the church this morning. Then Paul stood in front of the Areopagus and said, Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way, because as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with the inscription, To an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, he who is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by human hands, nor is this God served by human hands at all as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mortals life and breath and all things. From one ancestor he made all nations to inhabit the whole earth, and he allotted the times of their existence and the boundaries of the places where they should live, so that they would search for God and perhaps grope for God and find God, though indeed he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being as even some of your own poets have said, for we too are his offspring. Since we are God's offspring, we ought not to think that the deity is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of mortals. I love that phrase. While God has overlooked the times of human ignorance, now God commands all people everywhere to repent Because God has fixed a day on which he will have the world judged in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising this man from the dead. The word of the Lord. Amen. By way of our opening prayer, or prayer of illumination technically is what we call it in the the church, uh, I'd just like to share with you a quote from C.S. Lewis that... Great agnostic atheist Oxford Don, who later in his life became a Christian, um, and in so doing, at that same time, suffered a lot of sadness and loss, including the loss of his wife, whom he had married late in life, which they'd found each other late in life. Um, and so C.S. Lewis shares these words about love, and they really touched me as I thought about the love of a mother figure. Lewis said, To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrong and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping your heart intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even a child or an animal. Wrap your heart carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock your heart up safe in the casket or coffin of your self-focus. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, It will change. Your heart will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The only place outside heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers of love is hell. Please pray with me. It is in the vulnerability of love that we come before you today to seek to know you better and be known by you more deeply, O God. So may the meditations of our hearts together upon your word be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. My best friend in life makes a very good living uh, in way upper management now selling robot vacuum cleaners. We also have cars, apparently, that drive themselves. We have, and it's a big thing lately, ChatGBT. I'm not really sure what that is, but it's supposed to be cool. Um, we can map the human genome. We have nanotechnology, which constructs tiny, minuscule machines, which deliver and then make repairs on the molecular level. We have astrophysicists who map the curvature, not of the Earth, but the universe delving into black holes, listening for echoes of the big bang. It's all amazing, this technology that has... I come, we've come so far in my lifetime, way back in the 70s, the way you got on the cutting edge of technology is you made friends with the one family on the block who had a color TV. And you went to their house. That was cutting edge. So why, I ask you. As a Mets fan, I admit, did the builders of the new Yankee Stadium, which is not so new anymore, and which, sadly, is exactly like the old one, um, spend five hours on April nineteenth, two 2008, and about fifty dollars to $60,000 digging through two feet of set concrete that they had already poured. Anybody remember this story? They did it. They stopped construction on Yankee Stadium the second house that Ruth built, in order to dig up and extract a David Ortiz Boston Red Sox jersey, which had secretly been buried by a Boston Red Sox fan on the construction crew in the visitor's dugout. And because they did all that, they stopped the whole thing, and they spent all that money because everyone, Christians, Jews, Muslims, and atheists and agnostics alike, believed in the jinxing power of a piece of 70% 70 polyester, 30% cotton cloth submerged in a concrete floor in a locker room. Everybody, and nobody questioned what the Yankees did. We're all superstitious, right? Everybody believes in something, whether you're religious or not. We knock on wood, we avoid going perpendicular to a black cat. We always take notice of Friday the 13th when it happens. Many people, I have a dear friend who loves horoscopes. Person went to Harvard, but they read horoscopes every day. Back when I played sports in the ancient world, I had the same meal before every game. Grilled cheese sandwich with jelly on one side. It's Danish, don't worry about it. and split pea soup. I always wore underneath my pads and football the exact same t-shirt, and I always wore the same socks, whether they'd been washed recently or not. Because, hey, it can't hurt, right? Superstition. Little children have that special blankie or stuffed animal. Both my kids did. I did. Uh, when physical reality is not enough for anyone, we find some way to imbue sort of with magical thinking in the best terms what D.H. Winnicott, the great child psychologist called a transitional object to help us cope with the growing pains and uh, increasing sort of chaos of life. The human spirit knows deep down there's always something more to be revealed, that there's always something more out there, if only we could lift the veil this morning in this interesting narrative from the book of Acts, which many of us don't know that well. Um, Speaking to a crowd gathered in the elite court of the Oropagus, which is the sort of the town council of the the free city of Athens, the Apostle Paul is making an argument as he debates with the aristocratic governing leaders of this great city. And remember, last week, here in worship, we, we, we learned that Paul used to be named Saul, used to be a highly educated Pharisee, a Jewish man, steeped in the classical Greek uh, not traditions of knowledge and letters, and certainly very advanced in the Hebrew religious tradition, um, but has now become a follower in this text today of Jesus Christ, who was crucified. And Paul... is using all of his education and oratorical ability to debate with the Athenians, where debate was sort of the coin of the realm. Paul is trying today to talk about what we've already been talking about, this this human inner yearning for something more. He says, you know, guys, I just got into your great city. I've never been here before. I I took one of those tours, you know, when you get on the bus, off the bus, on the bus, off the bus. seeing all these amazing shrines around Athens to all of your amazing gods, all the gods you Athenians worship. You've got your Aphrodite, you've got your Apollo, you've got your Zeus, and of course, you've got your Athena. And I'm going around and I'm seeing all these shrines as I'm touring and all these statues to all of your deities, all of your gods. And what's cool is that every one of your gods has a job, a purpose, need to win a battle? Ares is your guy. You want some wisdom? Want to decide whom to marry or whether to invest in a certain stock? You go with Athena. But, Paul says, what really surprised me, I didn't expect to find on this tour, is this altar I found with the inscription that reads, to an unknown god. And this god, whom you also worship, This unknown God, I today want to introduce to you. This is the God of heaven and earth. This is the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Rachel, Leah. This is the God of Jesus Christ. This is the God who made the world, made the universe, and made everything and everyone in it. The God that you already worship by no name. And what's different about this God and you recognize it already because you've given this God no name, is that you can't make a statue out of this God, and you can't even describe this God. Language or human effort are not enough to encompass it, which is to control it. To name something is to have control over it. But you get it. You know, as I know, as a follower of Jesus, that this is a God you cannot manage or control by praying or sacrificing or being a good person or jogging or saving or anything else this is a God who is sovereign beyond boundaries a God of love and we try to control this God it's like we, we know all the other gods have their purpose and we pray to them when we need something done for ourselves Paul says but this God is not controllable I like the story about the kindergarten teacher who was observing her classroom, and while they were uh, doing drawings, it was draw, draw picture time during kindergarten that day. She was walking around and looking at every child's artwork, and kind of leaning over and sort of making a comment here or there. And as she got to one little girl who was working away diligently, you know, thumb out, I mean, tongue out, and um, she asked the little girl what that drawing was, and the girl replied, "Oh, oh, I'm trying to draw God." And the teacher paused, and then she. Gently said to the girl, but sweetie, nobody really knows what God looks like. And the girl without missing a beat said, they will in a minute. <laughs> most of the Athenians here this morning, like most of us I suspect, um, would say things like, hey, as long as I'm a good person, as long as I believe in some greater power, does it matter what God I worship? The members of the early Christian church believed it did. That's why they faced persecution and harassment, beatings, imprisonment, and even death for their faith. Uh, Like today, being Christian was increasingly unpopular. It certainly didn't make them more respectable. It didn't help them get a new job or any job prospects at all. It didn't make them better parents. It wasn't... uh, it was downright dangerous it wasn't just sort of countercultural as it is more and more today and that's why paul is explaining and debating and preaching uh, with and then preaching to the athenians and the Oropagus, saying a message to them that has three vital points the first point is that this unknown god this God that Paul claims is the same God of Jesus Christ is the God who created the universe and all things in it and wants to be known by us. That was a radical new theological conception back 2,000 years ago. Everybody believed in some kind of greater power, but not a power that wanted to be known intimately. Paul is saying to them, Jesus of Nazareth whom we call Christ, is how we know God. This is a basic foundational belief of the Presbyterian Protestant Christian tradition. God reaches out to us and makes God's self known to us in Christ, a a person of vulnerable love, a person of risk, a person of kindness and mercy and courage, the God who covers all the other stuff beyond The God of war, the God of the harvest, the God of fertility, the God of wisdom. This is our God, a God who still, in spite of it, this God's transcendence wants to be known by us. But we like gods we can get our arms around. We like gods we can understand. We like gods we can control even with our prayers. If I just pray hard enough, I'm going to get what I desperately and deeply want. We like to know the God we know, even if the gods we know can't do much more for us than their one little function. So a lot of us, like the Athenians, resist what Paul is saying to us today. I read about a three-year-old boy who was sitting with his mother listening to an enthusiastic sermon one Sunday morning. And at one point, the preacher pounded on the pulpit and said, god is eternal a little boy turned and stared at his mother wide-eyed and said mama i didn't know god is a turtle <laughs> that is a little mini human version of idolatry right that i can understand that eternally I i can't really uh, get my mind around so idolatry is just us creating deities or sources of happiness peace sustenance centered around our own needs on our own timing gods that we can control and god can be a turtle that's what we want our god to be that's how the athenians did it that's how all of us at times do it we think our survival or our prosperity those we love is based just as they did on our ability to ward off evil appease the good gods but there is only appeasement in that approach to life and to faith, not relationship God seeks to know us if you're just trying to appease God so nothing bad happens to you, financially health wise, relationship wise, you're constantly being chased by anxiety there's constant worry it's never enough Contrast that situation with the message Paul is bringing to these Athenians in his debate today. He says that the God who made the world and everything in it is the God in whom we live and move and have our being. Not separate, not distance, not aloof, like the pantheon of Greek gods. A God in whom we live and breathe and have our very being. The second point Paul makes, bless you, you're welcome, is that this unnamed God, by definition, is not defined to certain functions that we need from God, that we think we know we need from God. Other gods have fixed boundaries. Our God does not. God in Christ, that unknown God who can't be controlled or managed, Paul is saying, will cross boundaries and borders and even great distances, even the valley of the shadow of death, to find us our sovereign God, is just that. There's nothing controlling that God in Christ. That self-offering love has burst every boundary that there possibly could be. Finally, Paul is saying that this God, who wants to be known by us and who will find us across any boundary because of the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, wants to be in a relationship with you because God loves you. This intimate Nature, this relational God was unheard of. And it still scares us and makes us uncomfortable today. Like all relationships, relationships take work. But the relationships that really matter mean everything. Certainly, on Mother's Day, we can accept that to be true. There was a college student I read about who spent a year living with a group of Navajo Native Americans while the student was pursuing his doctoral studies. And when it came time for this young man to go back to the university after being there for almost a year, the tribe held a going away celebration for him, and the next day as he got ready to throw his backpack into this pickup and head out, the grandmother of the family with whom he stayed, who welcomed him into their home, with tears in her eyes, said to him, I like me best when I'm with you. That's a real relationship. Recently for my uh, 60th birthday party, my kids and Sarah uh, surprised me by having friends from Seattle and Virginia and everybody sort of come together and show up at my doorstep. It really surprised me. And then my kids later said, it's so much fun watching you with that because completely relaxed. We love each other. It's been a long time now. We can say the same thing about our relationship with Jesus. That's what we are meant for. That's the God, what God wants for us. I like me best when I'm with him, with the God who is willing to find me, who wants to be known by me. We all are the best that we can be when we're that God, the unknown, uncontrollable God. Relationships are hard. They take work. Um, I've said in here before that if you, I, I love doing weddings, but what's really meaningful to me is wedding vow renewals, which I've done a few of over the years, because the people get up knowing what they know about the other person after all these years and saying, "I still choose you." Anyway, that's pretty powerful. The story about a young man from Scotland who was admitted to Oxford University, so he moved. Across the way, down across the border to England, and he moved into the dormitory there in Oxford, which is incredibly beautiful. If you have a chance to visit, it's incredible. But his mother back in Scotland worried how he'd get along with those snobbish Englishmen in his dorm. So she gave him a telephone call, and he says, How do you find the English students, Donald? And he says, Oh, mother, they are a strange and noisy people. The one on this side of my dorm room bangs his head against the wall all night and won't stop. The one on the other side screams and curses until the sun comes up at dawn. Oh, Donald, says his mother, how do you put up with such rude, noisy people? I ignore them, mother, he said. I just sit here quietly every night playing my bagpipes. (laughs) Relationships are hard, and yet that's what God wants for us and with us. I think both Jesus and Paul listened to people as much as they talked, that's what a real relationship is. Paul was in dialogue with his Greek audience enough to know their beliefs and to find God revealed in them rather than impose a completely strange and foreign God in some kind of dominant way. He Rather he found something they could relate to to give them an introduction into this amazing new kind of God, this God of intimate relationship and love that Christianity is suddenly talking about. Paul wasn't afraid to put his own Christian faith into what uh, biblical scholars and scholars of religion uh, have called the marketplace of religious ideas. Will Willimon and Stanley Hauerwas at Duke University for many years studied this issue. And Willimon, an Episcopal bishop, said, in one of his books, sometimes the biggest challenge is to admit that all of us are living by some point of view or another, no matter who we are, religious or not. All of us are betting our lives on something. We may be betting our life on the point of view that says, I try not to have any point of view other than the one officially enforced. And there are no points of view worth acknowledging or living or dying by. Or. There is that point of view that says, I still have lots of questions about Jesus and doubts even about Jesus and his way, of course, and there's still much about all of this I don't understand really, and I fall constantly short of being a truly dedicated, faithful follower of Jesus. Still, I am trying, and I'm convinced because of love that Jesus is, for me, the way, the truth, and the life, and I am doing my best. Simply to trust that. It would have been interesting if Luke in his book had told us what happened when Paul stopped talking and what the ideas that came back were. How many people were convinced when their unknown God was finally introduced to them and no longer was nameless. Amen.